I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Hello, my name is Demetrius. This is Michelle. Hey guys, how's it going? This is Jason. Hey guys, how we doing? And you're listening to Spaces Podcast. Welcome to Spaces. Thank you for joining us. For our returning listeners, thank you for coming back. And a special shout out to those joining us from Entre Architect and ArchiSpeak Podcasts. I uh, wanted to thank those guys. They've shown us a lot of love on, on Twitter and social media. And for those that may not know, Entre Architect, I mentioned it before, Entre Architect is a podcast that's geared towards the small business or small firm architects, a great resource for, for anyone that's a small firm architect. So go check them out. And then ArchiSpeak is a podcast that discusses everything architecture, just the day-to-day life as an architect. So check those guys out and uh, support them. And thank you for those that came over for supporting us. And a few housekeeping items. Don't forget about our survey. Uh, you can go to our website, spacespodcast.com, fill out that survey. Again, it's only seven multiple choice questions, just trying to get an idea of who our listeners are. And if you're new to the show or you haven't done so already, after I finish this statement, please hit pause so you can subscribe and not miss another episode and hit the share button to send this to a friend. You will not regret it. Your support is the only way that the show grows. So do that right now. So today we're doing things a little different. We're not going to discuss a specific project type, but we're going to highlight the careers in the building industry. 
So whether you're in the building industry or not, definitely stick around because a lot of this information is going to apply across the board no matter where you work. But it's good to get some insight into this profession and this industry. In addition, this would be a good podcast to pass on to your kids and any of your employees, coworkers that might be interested. So definitely listen and then share this one. But before we jump into the actual topic, I want to catch up, uh, see how everyone's been doing. Michelle? I've been doing well. I was actually looking back at my calendar because I knew you were going to ask what has been <laughs> happening since we last met. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I, you know, the last two weekends I've been out of town. Mm-hmm. Uh, work-wise, uh, busy as ever. We talked about that before. Lots of fun, exciting things happening at work and... Um, One of the really cool things that happened is I was actually invited to be part of a women's housing leadership group, which is women across the United States who meet and collaborate and share stories and talk about how we can mentor each other and grow each other and um, just get a greater presence of women in the home building industry. So that has been really neat to be part of that organization and and that group of, of women leaders. Very cool. Uh, We're going to check in with Jason, who is doing double duty, uh, multitasking. He's out in the the soccer field right now. (laughs) Yeah, it's Monday night. So Monday nights are soccer practice. And then uh, tomorrow will be hockey practice. And Wednesday night soccer, Thursday night hockey. And then we have a tournament this weekend for hockey. So definitely pulling double duty these days. But no, everything's been good. Um, You know, kind of like to echo what Michelle was saying, everything's busy. Um, I just had a three hour long meeting with one of our builder partners that we uh, do both disciplines with flooring and cabinets about end of the year and how we're going to schedule everything out, and, which is all good stuff. I like those types of discussions. And then uh, this weekend, I know we did one on hotels. We stayed at the Grand Californian, the Disney Grand Californian, which I love that hotel. Super cool. And then uh, spent several hours in both parks and I realized why it's wonderful to have a pass. We can leave once things get crowded, but um, <laughs> it's my definition of hell at times, to be honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> too many people. It's too tight. Everybody smells. I just want to get out, but um, you know, it is what it is. But uh, but yeah, no no other showers started leaking, so no major issues this week, which is great. But uh, just piping, man. Absolutely piping. Nice. I had a interesting story. My wife and I went to a friend's um, wedding reception. And she, she is super, I don't know if you guys have heard of this, uh, Skeeter syndrome. I have no Skeeter? idea what that means. No. Okay. No idea. So th- this actually exists, Skeeter sin- syndrome, where you're allergic or have bad reactions to mosquito bites. And we went to our friend's uh, wedding reception and it was in a backyard hanging out all all, uh, all night and you know she had a like a sundress thing on or whatever and she felt like one bite I think throughout the night but that was it and I didn't feel anything so we go through the night next morning uh, she wakes up and she's covered she has 15 bites I ended up with two and she when I say severely reacts, it looks like she got shot with a pellet or a BB gun, like huge welts all over her leg. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and get a picture to put on our. our uh, Dude, I don't want to see that. I'm not gonna <laughs> lie to you. Uh, and 
just for comparison, we were out in uh, Arizona, all hanging out by the pool, um, and you know, sun sets, but it's still super hot, like 90 degrees, and um, none of our friends, me and neither of our other friends got bit a single time, but she got covered in bites that time. She just has the worst luck with mosquitoes. So we had a, a, a good time dealing with that over about a week, trying to do uh, the, what do you call it? cortisone cream and had to keep a temperature cool to prevent itching and it was it was a mess that sucks man that totally sucks (laughs) so let's uh let's jump into the topic today again we're going to talk about careers in the building industry and the reason we want to talk about this today is we're kind of entering this generational milestone i don't know if you guys have realized it but the leading edge of millennials are taking leadership roles like ourselves. The trailing edge of millennials are entering their first year of college. And then Gen Z is wrapping up high school and going to start going into college uh, next year. So we're in this huge transitional point um, for all of the, for these two generations. And as everyone knows, uh, think a lot differently. (laughs) Um, the tail end of millennials and the entire generation Z were raised with a computer and know nothing else. They don't know the world before digital age. So generation Z probably never had a landline. That is true. <laughs> so we wanted to, uh, to kind of give our listeners. And if you have children that are in high school uh, or in college, uh, definitely get them to listen to this episode but give you give an idea of what what it takes to to enter the the building industry kind of the path to take in our different focuses give an idea of how that kind of works so we brought in a guest today that's going to help with this discussion he started with the company about 3 years ago as the sole person in his in his department and basically built that that group up his team uh from from scratch so he'll have a lot of insight into what he looks for when he's hiring someone and, and kind of what it takes. He's described as an exacting, energetic, and seasoned professional, renowned for his exceptional engineering design skills as well as strong organizational acumen. His exceptional expertise, responsiveness, and sensitivity to client needs reinforce and enhance his leadership role in providing master planning solutions. He started working in the civil engineering field after freshman year of college. Since, he's worked on and managed a variety of land development and capital improvement projects in several cities and counties throughout Southern California, from single lot custom home sites to a 2000 home master plan development with major infrastructure design. He's participated in design efforts for development projects overseas in Saudi Arabia and Egypt. Please welcome the Director of Land Development for the U.S. West Region of IBI Group, Puneet Komar. Thank you, Demetrius. Thanks for joining us. Who wrote that 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 intro and that bio, man? That thing is awesome. <laughs> I plagiarized it from uh, somebody from Michael Baker. <laughs> it was awesome. I, I got to work on mine. You want to give give our listeners a little bit of a background, uh, more detail on IBI Group, what you're doing there, and what you have going on? 
Sure. Uh, well, thank you, Demetrius, for inviting me on to your podcast. I really appreciate that. Uh, it's my first time on a podcast, so I p- apologize for any, um, you know, wrongdoings or whatnot. <laughs> uh, my background is in civil engineering, uh, well, civil and environmental engineering, and I've been in the civil engineering industry for since 1999, so almost 20 years. And I've been at a few different civil engineering firms, currently at IBI, where we do architecture, engineering, and planning. This is by far the largest firm I, I've worked at. IBI is a publicly traded company. We're based out of Toronto, publicly traded on the um, Toronto Stock Exchange. IBI stands for Infrastructure, Buildings, and Intelligence, and all the services we provide uh, fall under one of those components. My job over there at IBI is to oversee our uh, Southern California land development practice. And we're focused on private developments, um, industrial, residential, commercial, uh, really anything that we are interested in, we'll go after. Cool. I want to get your thoughts on this and we'll, we'll kind of go around the room to start this conversation, what attracted you to the building industry? I can start because I think I have maybe more so than, than the typical person, a a pretty thoughtful reason why I joined. Um, and it really all goes back to when I was six or seven years old, which was in the early nineties. And for the older listeners uh, who may have been in their working career ages in the early nineties, they know that that was the savings and loan crisis. And, Generally speaking, the industry wasn't going so well and the real estate market wasn't so hot. And so my parents were trying to sell a townhome in Montclair, California, and they struggled to sell that townhome. So every single Sunday, we would pile in the car in the minivan and we'd go look at model homes and um, pretty much vacate the house so that we could have an open house and our family of five wasn't there crowding, you know, prospective buyers. And so we would go around, and at the time, you know, Fontana was starting to develop, Chino Hills was starting to develop, Rancho Cucamonga. There were a lot of places in Ventura County, out in Thousand Oaks and Camarillo and whatnot. And so we would go to these model homes, and we would walk the models and try to identify where we were going to relocate to. And I started collecting the sales brochures, um, the floor plan booklets, the site plans, the the elevations, and I would take those home and I would literally study them because I was just interested and it was fascinating to me. And then my older brother and I would tape together eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper and we'd literally design and and create cities using building blocks. And depending on what our mood was, sometimes we used micro machines and other times we'd use Hot Wheels. Um, And this is a true story. And so we'd have, you know, our entire bedrooms would be covered with eight and a half by 11 paper taped together with (laughs) (laughs) you know, streets and bike lanes and parks and schools. And so one day I actually asked my parents who designed houses and who designed, um, you know, plans. And they said that that's an architect. And so quite literally from the age of seven Mm -hmm. onward, I wanted to be an architect and I did everything that I possibly could to position myself for a career in architecture. And even if I go back and look at essays that I wrote, in high school, preparing mm-hmm. for college applications, all of them are about architecture. Yeah. And so when I applied to college, I only applied to architecture schools mm-hmm. and actually started my 
degree um, at college as an architect major. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. So it was in college that I actually changed majors. And so, you know, my my interest and passion for the industry and why I'm in the building industry sort of roots from this early fascination with uh, the business and, and with architecture. And it's evolved from there. Oh, okay. Puneet, you want to jump in? Sure. Uh, that that was a pretty exciting. I mean, try to beat it. Uh, there's, I, I can't even come close to that. I uh, can't even come close. I had no plan or intention or any idea of ending up in the building industry. Okay. Uh, when, when I when I was a kid, I was good at math and science. Uh, people still make fun of me about my English, even though I was born and raised in Southern California. And I thought I wanted to be a soccer player that fell short very quickly. And because I was good in, in math and I, and I came from a family of engineers, uh, my dad told me to, to go be an engineer. <laughs> so I thought, okay, I'm Indian and you really get three choices when you're Indian, <laughs> doctor, lawyer, engineer. See, the kids are lucky these days. They got four choices. Now you could be an IT specialist if you're Indian. I only had three choices. So I decided to go be an engineer. And growing up as a kid, though, you know, my dad, he had he had apartment complexes in Pomona, California, and he had and he would give loans to people to to buy who didn't have good credit to buy a home. And a couple times these people couldn't pay him back and he ended up with their house. So he was an engineer, but he was also a, um, uh, I don't know, a landlord or a real estate investor. And I would go with him every week to collect rent and pull the, pull the money out of the washer dryer um, that was in the apartment complexes and fix things. And so I got a good taste of what that was like, even though I had no idea about real estate. Uh, so... I, I went to school to be an engineer, and on the first day of, of college, they showed us an orientation about building bridges. Hmm. So I thought, okay, I guess that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build bridges. <laughs> so I went to school for five years, and I was really, uh, I really liked uh, some of the drainage, uh, storm drain design, you know, all this nerdy engineering stuff. But I got my first job after college for a, a land development civil engineering firm out in Colton and we were working on development projects and by luck or by fate I end up I ended up in the um the building industry so I don't have a a visionary story (laughs) of how I got there I kind of stumbled into it yeah no however it happens it happens but it's it's good we we want to get uh try and encourage as many people as possible to to get involved in the building industry because it's a great industry to be in. Uh, Jason, what are your thoughts? Yeah, uh, you know, the funny part is I, uh, I I never wanted to be an engineer, that's for sure. Um, I have a lot of respect for engineers, and I think architecture is really cool. I thought at one point I was going to become an architect, no joke. Pretty creative mind. I draw a lot, used to draw cityscapes, all sorts of things. But the what's interesting is, aside from thinking I was going to be a professional hockey player early early on, I always knew I was going to be in the building industry. Now, the funny thing is, I didn't think I'd be on the trade side. I thought I was going to be on the development side, you know, coming up with putting together the master plans and and actually building the product and doing those types of things. But 
as fate may have it, somehow I got into flooring. Um, and then ultimately flooring led into all sorts of other things and now cabinetry as well. But, uh, I always enjoyed housing. It was the American dream. It's what everybody wanted, you know, that type of deal. And I just, I loved it. I loved creating things. I loved being able to build things. I'm very mechanically inclined. So I could usually see something and put it together with my hands. Not that I spent a lot of time doing so, but anytime a challenge would come up, I could usually create a solution for that problem. And I just always knew I wanted to be in there. And to be honest with you, I love it. And there's such a shortage for people. So like you were talking about the next generations, there's such a shortage of individuals in our industry, both both on the building side and the trade side. Um, and I think it's an amazing, amazing industry. And we're going to touch on a, a few things of, of ways to get involved because there are a ton of jobs available. Um, it's a, a open wide field to get involved in and a great rewarding one for me like you guys and i think i think we all share this just people in general have, as kids you have this kind of creative knack and and want to make things with your hands and i always had that interest of you know being creative but the other element for me was that i found that the environment especially the uh, built environment has this real effect on our, our thoughts, our emotions, our physical response, and even even to some extent our socioeconomic standing uh, in some senses. And I felt that being a part of the building industry was an opportunity to help create spaces that, that mattered to people and could make a change. I hate the phrase broken window theory because it touches on policing stuff but the theory that if a window is broken and is left broken uh, typically people will look at that space as kind of run down and, and unkept and it'll progressively get worse and worse so I was really in tune with this concept of uh, of my environment and how if it was either not designed correctly like I've been to spaces that security wasn't a, a high priority in design. Um, I was literally almost jumped because these two buildings were designed in a way that created a blind spot or a space that's not inspiring and kind of dampens creativity and, and the over fortification of it can just put you in a bad mood and make you anxious. And so I was really in tune to the way that our spaces affected us. So I wanted to be a part of creating spaces that made you feel good and, and promoted, um, you know, a good good environment and good life. So let's go through and kind of touch on the different levels of getting to the building industry. And we'll, we'll start in high school because people are uh, going back to school right now and trying to plan out where, where they're going to go when they graduate. For those people, let's kind of have everybody describe... Because I, I see the building industry broken up into kind of four parts, development, design, the construction side, and then the sales side. Michelle, you can kind of almost touch on all of them a little bit because you're because of your role. Yeah, I was actually going to... So I agree that there are those four components. And mm -hmm. then I think the other big component is the financing side oh, of it. Yeah, yeah. And there's a whole world related to... The building industry that is uh, tied to, you know, how do we actually finance a project? Mm -hmm. How do we 
finance the homeowners who are going to purchase the pro or purchase homes within the project. Mm -hmm. So I think there's that that side of it too. But I grappled with this when I switched majors from architecture to uh, ultimately was business. But what I didn't know, I was you know when you're young, and I actually switched majors as an 18 year old after only one semester in architecture school. And I struggled with, well, where do I go within development? I had made the decision that I wanted to be on the development side, but I really didn't know what that meant mm -hmm. or what my options were. And the reality is there are thousands of options within the building industry and within the development industry. Um, and not only within the building industry do you have the four or five categories that we've talked about with design and finance and construction development sales, but you also have what product type do you want to be in? Yeah. Residential. Is it residential for sale or residential rental? Mm -hmm. Is it commercial or is it office or hotel and hospitality? Um, so there's a lot of different angles and, and ways that you can go with, it, with even within the building industry. Yeah. So let's talk about on the development side, just in general, just a quick one-liner or synopsis of what a snapshot of the development side looks like. Or what, what someone would expect, I guess, if you were to explain the development part of this industry. Do I only get one line? <laughs> A couple lines. <laughs> um, if I were to describe what the development industry looks like, is that the question? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I'm going to speak initially from a residential development perspective. And so to me, what that means is site identification. Mm -hmm. So where are you actually developing? It's the design. So it's as a developer being able to look globally about a project and the opportunities and constraints with that future project, and then bring being able to assimilate a team of designers, civil engineers, consultants, et cetera, that can see the vision to fruition uh, and then financing that project. So bringing in the right debt and equity partners and, you know, as a developer, you're sort of orchestrating the entire project mm -hmm. uh, and seeing it from, again, site acquisition all the way through the fruition of that project where you have a revenue event. Yeah. Puneet, let's, uh, well, we can tag team that sort of design realm mm -hmm. uh, if you want to start sort of more towards the engineering and and land side what would be your sort of summary explanation of what uh, a high school student would expect or or how would you tell them what you do and what that field is like that is a very good question <clears throat> and when i was in high school i had no idea about any of this michelle was very smart when she was in high school <laughs> i didn't have a clue of half the things that she's talking about so hats off to michelle i fumbled my way <laughs> <laughs> um well what i focus on is large master plan projects so i would ask a high school student where do they live what neighborhood do they live in? Do they live in a hillside development? Do they live in an infill project? Do they live in a gated community? All those things had to be planned out. All those things had to be designed. Uh, where does the, the when they when they flush the toilet, the water's got to go somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. Where's it going? Mm -hmm. Just disappears into La La Land? <laughs> yeah. No. These are things that engineers think about. See, I don't think about <laughs> where does the water go when I flush the toilet. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, somebody's got to know. It's a good thing we got people like Puneet. <laughs> the dirty job. Uh, hey, in all fairness, though, I literally had the same discussion with a buddy of mine when we were at uh, a game the other day in the stadium. It's like we started talking, like Puneet will totally get this. We started talking all of a sudden, like, think about the logistics of how much food comes in here. and Think about all the water fountains and think about how many times freaking toilets are flushing in this. I mean, all that kind of stuff is things that nobody wants to think about or study. But that's the truth. Right, Puneet? That's... I mean, it's like all of that has to work through everything. And most people would never think of that stuff. Well, and, um, you know, for those who've traveled to third world countries or not even maybe third world countries, but you can clearly see the difference in a well thought out development versus a not well thought out development. And yes, I agree with you, Jason, all those underlying things that most people don't think about somebody like myself has to think about because that that's our job. Yeah. On the architectural side, I would kind of describe or design in general is basically problem solving and you're coordinating between the owner or developer, um, the governing agencies, the public to basically develop a, a building that appeals to all those different parties. And then you're moving into developing drawings that will allow contractors to efficiently build that building. And then specifically to an architect, uh, our first goal is to protect the safety and welfare of the public, uh, anybody that enters that building. Um, and then aside from that, we're again, we're developing that building through a design process that consists of a ton of elements. We're considering the use, the comfort of those users, the aesthetics, the safety, the environment. Again, that public opinion, building code, budgets, and then now technology and the future of that technology. So it's a lot of coordination and kind of working all these different pieces and coordinating with uh, people like Puneet on kind of if that building's too big, uh, where we need to put certain plumbing, all those different elements. Uh, so it's a, a very large encompassing uh, coordination and design role for architecture. So, oh, Jason, how would you, how would you describe the construction side to to someone in high school and their expectations of taking in that taking over that role i think the biggest thing for people on the construction side i think what you do is you look more into project management and those types of things um especially if they're going to school but ultimately you know i don't know if we if i think for engineering and architecture you guys need to get super focused on on a particular subject i think what michelle experienced and what i certainly experienced and see is there's a whole world of business acumen that is absent a lot of times in, in uh, most of the people that enter our industry. And basic marketing degrees, or ba I'm sorry, basic business degrees, like I got a marketing degree, which is really just the study of people and how people work, um, finance, and all those types of things that go into it, uh, would be great for people that are going to enter project management. I mean, that could encompass construction managers, superintendents, people that want to go work in the city, you know, a lot of those types of things, I would suggest that. And in talking with a lot of the, the d division presidents and things like that, that hold leadership roles in, uh, in the builder side, I mean, they came up either usually through land, which, uh, which Michelle can attest to, or through project management, uh, one or the other. So I would tend to say go that direction. But I would, I would also encourage people, don't pigeonhole yourself. Unless it's, unless it's highly specialized, like engineering would be, and 
architecture would be, unless you're going into something that's highly specialized, I would say get a really good idea as far as business. Um, so you're dealing with economics and you're dealing with finances and you're dealing with um, just an overall scope of people. I think that's one of the biggest things that you need to touch on. You can get you can get a basic AA degree in construction management, but really the stuff that you need to learn for construction management is going to happen as you're doing it through experience. Yeah, one of the, one of the things I'd agree with Jason is he said managing people and working with people. I think that's the most underrated skill set in our industry, I mean, especially with engineers. Most engineers have a really big challenge talking to people. And I and I tell people all this all the time that I I'm not the best engineer per se, but I can explain the technical components of engineering to a non-technical person. Yeah. Amen, brother. Amen. <laughs> I'll add one of the things that I actually got very fortunate about. So, as I said, I started out as an architect major, and all of the six schools that I applied to were the best of the best architecture schools on the West Coast. And I was actually very fortunate that I ended up not choosing a school that was very specialized in architecture. And and of those six, there were a couple. Fortunately, I was at USC. And so when I ended up switching majors, I was switching majors to business. And fortunately, USC has a phenomenal business program. Whereas if I had been at Woodbury, which is a phenomenal liberal arts school and has a great architecture program. Had I switched majors at Woodbury, my options really would not have been very great. Yeah. So there is some truth to what Jason is saying. And, you know, as an 18 year old, I, I don't know that you, you just don't have enough information. And so you kind of gather this information and to leave as many paths open for yourself, I think is always a good thing. Yeah. This is getting personal. Hmm. What, our salary expectations. I don't know if you guys have sort of a general range that you think of or know. Like for architect, I'll tell you what I do know. Any of the young kids that are in college right now that think they're going to be making a certain number, you can probably take that and hack it by thirty three percent at a minimum (laughs) when they're first coming out of college. I mean, we could start it there. Yeah. But I think I think expectations of salary when kids are coming out of college these days are way out of whack. Way out of whack. One of the things, and I actually will, I say this all the time when I talk to people who ask why you change majors, and, and there were kind of two reasons, well, maybe three reasons. One of the reasons was I realized very early on being in architecture school at USC, one of the best architecture programs on the West Coast, that the starting salary, at least in 2006 when I was graduating, was about 32000 Yep. as an architect. <laughs> yep. And I just... I looked at that and I, that just wasn't, you know, not to say that money is everything, but that, that just didn't gel with me. Uh, that wasn't what I sort of wanted my starting salary to be when I had finished five, you know, in architecture would have been a five-year program. Um, so that was one of the reasons why I ended up changing majors to business is I, I just felt like there, there had to be a little more than that, um, you know, as a, as a starting. And that's not to say that I had unrealistic expectations, but that was one of the things that I had considered um, when I did change majors. Just as a random question, you said the starting salary was about 32000 How much would a year, if you hadn't gotten grants or scholarships or whatever it is you did, how much would a year of that school ended SC cost you? 
just for an average student, it was, I want to say about 42,000 a year. That was so, but that was from 2002 to 2006 were the years that I was in undergraduate. I think that number is now like 58. I, I don't know oh that. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> I, I actually don't know that. I'm, I shouldn't, I shouldn't even say that because I, I haven't actually looked at what the tuition numbers are, but I know it's exponentially it's more than what it was. <laughs> it's not cheap. Let's put it that way. <laughs> So that's a great point uh, that I want to kind of drive home as as those leaving high school, as you kind of plan out your career, think seriously about what school you go to, the debt you're going to incur in relation to your expected starting salary. So for architects, uh, according to Glassdoor, which I completely think is inaccurate, they say for architects in 2018, the range is uh, starting 65000 up to, you know, towards the later end of your career, as high as 118000 I think these are very generous numbers. I think right around when you were talking about, Michelle, uh, I graduated or finished up around 2007. My starting salary was 38000 and it was pretty much right in that range for six years. So, and part of that had to do with the economic downturn, but it is a lower paying salary in the beginning, and it can take a while to increase your salary. So to be aware of that, it is a passion industry, but you can, there is opportunity to make money later on in your career. Uh, you just have to work it the right way. <laughs> but uh, Puneet. Uh, my starting salary was, um, was, was close to you guys, what you guys are describing. And I'll get into that in a moment, but, um, you know, today, today's generation is, um, I think is really big on passion and finding that job that they love to do. It's funny because, uh, they choose, uh, or, or, or I read and I hear that today's generation salary is not on the priority or not number one on the priority list on finding a job. But then like Jason said, they have, when they do graduate, they got these uh, unrealistic expectations of what they want to make. But in my case, I was really straightforward about it. I I was all about the money. (laughs) I wanted to make as much money as I possibly could. Yeah. Yeah. Why are you going to be an engineer? Well, because I went, and I, and, I, and I studied online and I saw that an engineering degree can generate on average one of the higher salaries than any other profession, mm-hmm. a four-year degree. Mm-hmm. So, perfect. <laughs> I, want, I want the money, right? And you, you get your first job and it's, um, I mean, to me, I started out at about forty-three dollars or $44,000 in salary. And as a 23 or 22-year-old kid... To me, that was a good amount of money. That was back in 2000, um, 2003. So I did, you know, the typical thing that an engineer does when he gets his first job making $45,000, you go buy a new car. You know, you're living <laughs> at home with your parents and, and you go buy a new car. But I would tell, I would tell any high school or college kid that you can make as much money as you want in this industry. If you look, I thought when I was a kid, I had to be a, a professional athlete to be a multimillionaire. But if you look at who are the richest people in the world, they're not professional athletes. Most of them are in the real estate industry. And, you know, a, 
uh, a professional athlete, uh, I'm not saying I'm making anywhere close to this kind of money. Okay, I'm making peanuts, but a $20 million salary for a professional athlete is amazing. But you look at some of these real estate moguls, they're making $100 million, $200 million, $300 million a year. So sure, you're going to start off on a, at a salary at, in today's market, we pay between fifty dollars and $60,000 uh, to start. But in, in three to four years, you can increase that by 50 60 70 percent you're you're not even 30 years old so i would encourage all all graduates that there's no cap on how much money you can make in this industry it's about your ambition your ability to negotiate your salary and your motivation to go out there and get it uh jason yeah um you know, it sounds like we're all pretty close. You know, when I graduated, I, I may be the only state school educated individual here, and I'm proud of that. I'm Cal uh, Poly State, Jason. There, okay, I'm with you, all man. right, man. We're together. Yeah. I went to Cal State Fullerton, so Titans through and through. But uh, <laughs> ultimately, I think when I got out again, like I said, I had a marketing degree, and I think when I started where I started at, I was probably mid 40s, is my guess, in in salary, and that would have been 2003, 2004. And the way I always approached you know, income and those types of things was I wanted to find something that was performance based because having such a strong athletic background and team sports and soccer and ice hockey and that type of stuff, look, you got paid to play, you know what I mean? And if you're performing and you're constantly at the top, you're going to be getting the playing time, the notoriety, or you're going to be paid that way. Right. Um, so the industry that I'm in, I ended up getting moved into, you know, operations and account management and that type of stuff. And ultimately into the things that I oversee now, and it's all performance based. You know, as the company does better and better, you will, if you're the one that's creating a lot of those opportunities or helping to drive revenue and profitability, they're going to want to keep you around. Right. So that's kind of how I looked at it myself. I didn't, you know, I wasn't like Puneet. I, I, I believe that being a, a professional uh, uh, sports player was the best thing ever. Um, <laughs> I fell rather short of that, unfortunately. Um, had a good run in my head and then, uh, and, and had reality slap me like a two by four from our industry. But, um, but ultimately that's how I always saw it and wanted to put myself, I don't like sales, which is the funny thing. I can't really stand sales, but I like making relationships and, and having relationships with people. So I've been able to, to merge the two, but it's a good way to make a lot of money. What I think is interesting though, in our industry, like you look at the construction side, a lot of people don't realize some of these, you know, site superintendents they make six figures really you know what i mean and they did somebody say really yeah i didn't know that. they make six figures i mean when you figure in um salary and bonus and all these kind of things some of these guys can make over six figures and make you know a decent decent tip into six figures wearing shorts walking the job site and you know kind of having their own schedule if you will as long as everything's running tip top for the most part nobody cares um and i'm not saying it's an easy job trust me because again it comes back to dealing with a whole lot of people yeah. But um, but the superintendents can do that. I mean, I've got like trades, right? So we have the flooring trade and the cabinet trade. Some of our guys make really good, like installers, right? Make really good livings. And most of them have just a high school education. It's hard work. Don't get me wrong. But you'd be shocked. Like some of the people that, that find out how much some of these guys can make in a year, they're shocked. And, and, I, and rightfully so, because they can make really good money doing it. So I mean, ultimately, depending on where you go in your career, if you can get paid for performance and, and set it up in such a way and you believe in what you're doing, 
you're going to be okay. Some people aren't okay with that uncertainty though. You know what I mean? So you really have to determine what's best for you. But, you know, again, I want some people to pay attention to our industry. There's some positions that you would never imagine make good money and they can make really good money, like really good money. Yeah. I didn't really address the question. My starting salary, I'm actually really surprised, was higher than all three of yous. Oh. Three of yous? Three of yous? Three of yous? Three of you guys. Let's not speak like that. <laughs> yeah. So my as in the development industry, my starting salary was 52000 per year. That was 2006. And that was as a land acquisition specialist in the Orange County office. And what was fascinating is the company that hired me was hiring for that same exact position across the United States. And it definitely, even though the task was, you know, the job description, the job responsibilities were all identical, the salary was different depending on what region you were at. And yeah. so, in fact, the LA region for that same position was hiring, uh, was $4,000 less than the position in Orange County. So there was some fluctuation there and, and people should be aware of that as they're pursuing opportunities that, you know, cost of living does have a role in what ultimately that salary might be. Yeah. Yeah. Location, uh, company size, project types, experience in your role is going to kind of vary significantly. And real quick for architects, um, if you're interested, the AIA has a a pretty cool salary calculator. Um, You just enter some information and they uh, spit out what you should expect uh, based on your experience, location, and, and company type. So let's kind of go rapid fire, try and get through a few of these uh, questions that we have. One from California Love 05 one of our, our listeners uh, sent this through Instagram, um, asking about educational requirements. Michelle, was there any specific educational requirement or a, a major that you would recommend a major in networking. <laughs> major. <laughs> no, I, you know, not for me. So to your question about um, education, so my education is is a four-year degree at USC, and I joke about the networking, but it truly is so critical and so important in our industry. I think maybe more so for a developer or someone that is outsourcing new opportunities and and trying to piece all the components of a project together. Um, I had considered going to grad school. In fact, I had planned to go to grad school, but one thing to be very aware of is that the real estate business uh, is very cyclical mm-hmm. and being mindful about when you are taking time off to go to school based on where we might be in a real estate cycle is very important. And so for me, when it kind of got to that point where I'd had enough years of work experience, where I had a resume that could get me into a reputable grad school, when I looked at where we were in the cycle, the real estate cycle, it didn't make sense. And I you know, would consult with mentors and it, it just didn't make sense for me to get off the career train, so to speak, to go back and get a degree when there was a lot of activity and the business was flourishing and we were growing as a company. Yeah. And so, you know, will I go back to grad school at some point in the future? Perhaps. But right now the focus while the going is good is to, is to, you know, be focused on the career and, and continue to grow the career and grow the business. Yeah. Puni? My degree is a four-year degree. It took a bit longer than that to get it, <laughs> but it's a four-year degree in civil and environmental engineering from Cal Poly Pomona. 
Uh, I strongly recommend advanced degrees. I wish I, I agree with what Michelle said. Um, when you're when the economy is going good, and you're making um, uh, what you feel like is a good amount of money, you don't want to stop that momentum and your uh, and get distract well distracted with um, doing homework and whatnot. But if I could go back in time, absolutely, I would recommend an MBA. And when I was in my 20s and others told me to go back and get an MBA, I thought I was too smart and I, <laughs> and I didn't need to. And I was an engineer. I was smarter than everyone else. And I was just going to get my engineering um, license, my professional engineering license, which I did. And I, wouldn't, and I would not need an MBA. And uh, I don't think it's and hindered me in any way from getting an advanced degree, but I think it really um, shows, it, it gives you instant respect and credibility, um, maybe not when you're 22, 23, 25, but when you start approaching your late 30s and you're in a group of a, of a much higher caliber of professionals, it can give you a lot of leverage. Yeah. Jason? You know, it's funny. I know it's not going to shock you or anybody that's listened before. I totally disagree with that stuff. I mean, it's really funny <laughs> because I have this discussion with a lot of people in it. And as, as you guys know, I'm pretty involved with some individuals um, at Chapman. I coached. I dealt with a lot of individuals there, a lot of kids getting MBAs. I know several individuals around me that have MBAs considered at one point going to get an MBA just because honestly, because I thought it sounded cool. No joke. Like that's the only reason why. I actually wanted to get a doctorate too, just so people would have to call me Dr. Wiener, but obviously I don't want to go through that much. <laughs> um, but I, but here's, here's my take. I think you absolutely need to have a four-year degree. At one point, you know, the four-year degree was a separator amongst a bunch of people, right? It's like you had high school educated individuals and you had people that continued their schooling and it was a separation, right? And, and there was an immediate difference in salary and those types of things, which I think is what you would tend to expect, I'm throwing up air quotes right now, in the difference between a four-year undergrad and then, a, and then a graduate degree. I always look at, and when I've met people that have graduate degrees, and this doesn't everybody, this is generalization, okay? What does it really matter? I think if you throw people into the mix, and Puneet's example, and you have a group of people, some have MBAs, some don't, I think at that point it really becomes, show me what you've done. You know what I mean? At this point, it's about what have you really done? What have you accomplished? And ultimately, if you're one of those individuals that's constantly pushing, that's constantly performing and is creating these types of environments that people want, they're not going to care if you've got an MBA or not. And I'm not saying that there's no credit for them. I'm not saying that there's no merit to them. But I think there's more importance these days placed on those types of things than there really needs to be. Um, I think if you're going to go into education, it, you know, there's big stepping stones where I think, uh, uh, Demetrius, you were saying like the AIA has like, if you're, you know, came out with this degree and you spent this much years, you'd be making this, right? I think those are the things that set improper expectations. If you're, if you're making and creating product, Demetrius, that everybody has to have, and it's ultimately flying off the shelves, they're going to be paying you tons of money. So I tend to place a whole lot more value on experiences and individuals that have really problem solved and done those types of things. And I'm not the type of person that, that believes at all. If you've been somewhere for five or 10 years that you just automatically get bumps in pay. That's not how I've ever looked at it. And I'm not saying that's right. That's just an opinion. Uh, but I think there's more importance placed on that. And even when I'm talking with associates that we have or individuals that are going to go into the workplace, 
I'm like, look, it doesn't matter if you've been there five or 10 years. What have you done to create more opportunities, revenue and profitability wise for the company you work for? That is the only reason you create more value in yourself. And they're ultimately going to want to pay you. So, um, so I have a basic four year degree in marketing because it was the study of people. And I thought it was the coolest thing when somebody said it's basically the study of getting somebody to buy something they never knew they wanted or existed. I thought that was magical. And I was like, geez, like that's it. If you can understand what a person wants and desires, um, and ultimately in your, in your situation, create a product to fill that gap or fill that void, you can do anything you want to do. So, um, I know. So a little bit different. Sorry guys. I went a bit, bit, bit against the grain there, but, uh, I think you've come to expect that anyway. So, <laughs> so when I hire a entry level engineer, if I were to look at a degreed engineer and a non-degreed engineer, and on day one, I would tell them both, neither of you know anything about what you're going to do. Like Jason mentioned, what have you done? Neither of them have done anything. However, there's a big difference between the degreed engineer and the non-degreed engineer. And what that difference is, the degreed engineer comes equipped with the tools and the capabilities to solve and manage the problems and deal with the situations that are going to be thrown at him. Mm-hmm. Likewise, I would argue that a, a, a advanced degreed person, not at, like I said, not at the age of in your 20s or, or in your early 30s, but as you start approaching those senior level uh, positions is when you really get to tap into those tools and, and dive and dig into, uh, you know, extract those capabilities that were given to you and taught to you during your advanced degrees. And, and I would argue that that person in general, not there's always the exception to the rule, but in general will be more successful than one who is not. Now I've got to volley back, right? I have to volley back. <laughs> so, so here's the thing. Jason, I don't it, necessarily disagree because, because basically what you're talking about is somebody's toolkit, right? As you go through education or, or whatever, even life experiences, you're going to add additional tools to your kit, right? And that's what you're sure. saying. Sure. Now, here's, here's how I look at it. I don't disagree with what you're saying in that regard. But you can have all the tools in the world you want. And you can have a professor that's in a classroom telling you how the world works. If they've not been outside those four walls and they've not actually sat in there and had the problem solved when the pressure's on, none of that matters. Okay. And I don't think it's necessarily worth anything unless you can actually apply it. Now, granted, you can't see if they're going to be able to apply it until you hire them and see how they work in that type of environment. But I saw a great quote the other day when somebody said, you know, they go, you know, is knowledge really power? And someone answered back, well, absolutely, right? And he goes, okay. He goes, well, how come everybody's not skinny and got six-pack abs and all this kind of stuff? We all know how you need to do it, but knowledge isn't the power. The application of that knowledge or the use of those tools in that kit is the actual power. And that's more so my point. So I think, I think those individuals, I think there's a value to it, to, to having the additional tools, to having brainstormed a bit more, to be around leveled-up individuals as well, right? that are generally a little bit more intelligent and can, and can challenge you and push you to grow further. But until such a time as you can actually show the application of those tools or the application of that knowledge, I'd say you're all on the same level. Okay. I'm going to cut it off there. I think, I think following debate rules, you guys each got to crack at it a couple. So I think uh, I got two and I think Puneet still deal one, but he and I can do that over a beer. And Jason got more time than I did. <laughs> so, uh, that just means you have to buy the beer, Jason. <laughs> Uh, Done, buddy. I got you. No problem. So for architects, 
we start with the undergrad degree, a Bachelor of Architecture, which is a five-year program. Uh, if you have a different undergrad degree and want to become and go down the path of architecture, you can get a Master's of Architecture, which is a three- or four-year program, uh, depending on the school and the program. After that, you have three years of apprenticeship or, or internship, which I highly recommend trying to do that while you're in school. Uh, it's roughly about three years of, of uh, internship. And then you jump to your AREs, which is the architectural registration exam. And that is, uh, it started out as nine exams. Then when I got to it, it went down to seven. And now I think they're at five. Um, then for some states, you have an additional exam. And then there's some supplemental certifications that you can get, lead, well, and someone mentioned project management earlier. Uh, there's a good one, PSMJ, that does well with uh, preparing our industry for uh, project management. And let's try and quickly hit a couple more of these. Uh, what would you guys say is the most critical business issue over the next one to two years that students that students should plan to resolve? Can I go first? Yeah, go for it. All right, since I just did it anyway. Ultimately, <laughs> I would love to see more students be able to come out and have a confident conversation with someone. I think that is the biggest skill that is being missed in so many ways and is probably the most important one that they're going to utilize in their professional career if they want to grow. That, that's my two cents. Puneet? I w I'm going to agree this time with Jason, even though he <laughs> likes to disagree with me. You're the man, brother. I agree with you. <laughs> per personal skills. You know, you can't be when you're texting all day long and you have to actually use your speaking skills uh it, i'm noticing it's hard for a lot of um a lot of the new generation to do that and i think we all touched on that that that's one of the skill sets we're we're lacking the most too much fortnite <laughs> yeah and the and and to come to combine with that is is humbleness as an entry level person I've interviewed a few folks recently who who they come in to my office and it's like they, they it's like they're the boss interviewing me you know and I'm like <laughs> and I got to kind of you know reposition that situation <laughs> so I would say uh interpersonal skills and humbleness I could not agree with what you just said Panit more um <laughs> the humbleness for sure uh the ability to carry on a conversation and just not be socially awkward is really important. And, and I, I kind of joke about that, but we just went through a pretty extensive interview process over the last six months. And I was sort of, I guess, really surprised at how uncomfortable some of these 22, 23, 24 year olds were sitting across the table, just having a conversation. And I'm not I really truly don't think I'm a tough interviewer. I don't ask tough questions. I just try to get to know someone to see if culturally that they will be a fit within our organization. And, you know, so focusing on your just conversation abilities, you know, go and, and maybe a good practice is to go to dinner with your parents' friends and just sit there and have dinner with your parents' friends and carry on a conversation and see how that goes. Um, the other thing that was really surprising was people's writing skills. It got to a point where as I was interviewing, I actually had to start asking for writing samples because the 
organization of of an email was was not clear or the things that people were submitting as a cover letter you could tell were just copy pasted from the cover letter that they had sent last week and so just you know taking time to pay attention to some of those details i think is very important Mm -hmm. um and then the other thing is passion i cannot tell you how you know much passion is important regardless of what job you're applying for you know really communicating to that potential employer that you're really excited to be there and thank you oh so much for having me come in and interview with you I can't tell you how excited I am about this opportunity. You don't get that a lot, and I think that's really important. No, I want to. I want to add one thing that I think is super interesting, right? In in an, in an environment where we have so much technology at our fingertips, and we have so many cool things to be able to work with, all of a sudden, the really basic things that are actually quite simplistic to do—I won't say easy because people struggle with them. But Michelle, to your point, like I sent a handwritten note to somebody the other day, just thinking for thanking them for some time. They, they lost it. I mean, they thought it was the most amazing thing because they haven't gotten a handwritten note in I don't know how many years. You know what I mean? Being able to look somebody in the eyes and shake a firm handshake. I can't tell you how many dead fish handshakes I still get these days <laughs> from young kids. It's horrible. I mean, and even the basic things. Like, I don't know if you guys saw any of my posts over the weekend, but I sent my son out. He's got to do a fundraiser. I sent him out door to door doing fundraisers to people he kind of knows and people he doesn't know. And having to actually rehearse what he's going to talk about and having them hit him with different questions and those types of things, looking them in the eye, you know, basic, basic fundamental stuff like people can make such an impact these days if they do just the basic things, I think, to Michelle's point. Yeah, those are all applicable to architecture as well. And one thing I would suggest for for people coming up is to start at a small firm because you can work on all those things that um, that everyone else is suggesting uh, in that small, small environment, you can't disappear in a big company. But a few things more specific to architecture, we're kind of splintering, I guess would be the best word, because there was a recent report that showed only 40% of architecture students plan to work for traditional architecture firms after graduation. And kind of one of the surprising things is 15% of students planned on working for corporations like Google um, and then other sort of tech companies because design thinking is really uh, desired in the business world now. There's actually a Harvard Harvard program that just got started called the or recently got started called the D School or Design School. So yeah, we're s- splitting up quite a bit right now, mainly because of that compensation to what I'll say stress, risk, and liability ratio is. Because for architecture, value or or what people value is very subjective. And when the value is subjective, it your compensation is hard to quantify and 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 ask for. So there's always an argument of how much you should get paid for something. Um, and some ways that that people are starting to discuss to approach approach that topic are, looking at uh, BIM, building information modeling, where we can start to use that data to justify the, the work that we're doing and be able to relate how that building works to how we intended it to be designed and prove basically what we've designed works or extend the relationship to that um to that client and our connection to that building for a longer period of time to where 
we can look at the data if things aren't working out exactly correctly um, to make adjustments and, and make suggestions to clients. In addition to, the, to that, architects are generally kind of altruistic by nature and, and lack a certain uh, business discipline. So we end up with things like scope creep a lot more than than other industries. Um, so I, de- I definitely suggest taking business classes while you're in college. You don't necessarily have to get an MBA because I think uh, our compensation doesn't make sense to take on that additional debt. But I definitely recommend trying to take a, a finance, a marketing and contracts class just to get uh, get to wrap your mind around what what that um, what those different parts mean and how to implement that into architecture. And one last question for the group: What would you guys recommend that uh, someone that's a little further along in their career uh, consider when they're evaluating their progress and goals? Puneet, you want to take oh, a first crack? Sure. You know, every every individual's different on what the measure of success may be. And you, you first got to ask yourself, what are my financial ambitions? What are my career ambitions? What do I like about this particular company? What I don't like? And am I on track to meet these financial ambitions or career ambitions uh, 10 years into it? I'm maybe a project engineer. Should I be a project engineer or should I be a project manager by now? Do I even want to be a project manager? So that's a, I feel that's a hard question to answer because there's, there, there should be no set bar. You know, I, I interviewed somebody, somebody the other day. I said, what's your long-term plan mm-hmm. or what's your end, uh, long-term goal? He says, I want to be a project manager. Mm-hmm. So why do you want to be a project manager? Say so, well, that's um, that's the head position. <laughs> I said, well, what if you don't like being a project manager? What makes you suddenly think you should do that? So sometimes people have these pre-notion feelings of what they need to be in five years, six years, seven years. Don't think about that. You got to ask yourself, what is in line with my goals and ambitions? And, and I think it differs from person to person. Michelle? I agree with all of that. Um, <laughs> I would add, for me, I was actually recently challenged um, by the leadership group that I had mentioned at the start of this podcast to evaluate and describe my brand. Hmm. And so what is my personal brand? And so 10 years into your career, you would hope that you'd have established a good brand for yourself. I'm beyond 10 years, but I'm, I'm having to think about what is my brand and what do I bring to the table? What do I want or how do I want to market myself to others? And so that's, you know, I think that's something, but it goes to what Puneet was saying, which is ultimately checking in with yourself, um, thinking back to how, where you came from in terms of how you entered whatever career you're in. And then, you know, after 10 years, have you met certain expectations and then going forward, what's your one-year plan? What's your five-year plan? What's your 10-year plan? And checking in, and it, and it's not just career; it's personal, it's family, it's um, financial, it's health-wise. I mean, there's a lot of different metrics, but I, I think making sure that you check in with yourself is is really important. Jason, yes, <laughs> on all of it, I, I I fully agree. You know, it's interesting too. Michelle 
I 100% agree with Puneet, 100% agree with with Michelle. And what I think one of the key things that Michelle talked about is your personal brand. Like I said, I'm a marketing major. Everybody has to have a brand. What are you known for? And that's one of the things that you should scribble out when you're first getting started. You know what I mean? What do you want to be known for? What do you want people to, you know, what, what do you want your eulogy to read or your tombstone to read? And those are the type of things that I think people have to pay attention to. The only other thing that I would say is you shouldn't be doing this in 10 years. I mean, you should be doing this in the beginning. You should be doing it in five years and, and you should, you should make sure the individuals that either a hired you or managing with you or your leadership team, if you're not yet part of it, knows what those goals are and how you can work to achieve those. It can't be just something that's singular or something that you do on your own and keep it to yourself. You've got to ask them how, what it takes to get to the next step and you have to be communicative. That's what I would add. Yeah. From me, I think, like one of the things that I, I always kept at the forefront is looking at that person, that next person ahead of me and identifying, is that something that I want to do? And if it's not quite something that I want to do, is there a way to tweak it to make it what I want to do? Um, so always keeping like, like everyone mentioned, checking in uh, throughout your progress. And also if you get to that point where you're really wavering on where to go, um, someone told me this before, does it hurt more to stay than it does to leave? So consider that as well um, as you're going through your career and making different changes because you have to be flexible. Uh, Tim Cook, the Apple CEO, there's this interview where he discussed his 25-year plan. Normally I would never remember this, but I was doing a commencement address a few years ago and I was scrambling for some old things and I found in a box this plan and this plan had turned yellow because of age but I looked at it and I would say it was it was reasonably accurate for all of uh, 18 to 24 months after it was written and it was nothing there was nothing not a single thing on it that was accurate post that not a single thing <laughs> Zero. Um, and I think that the lesson there is, at least for me, maybe you guys will be different. Maybe you have much more uh, insight into what you may be doing. But for me, the journey was not predictable at all. He makes a great point about how fluid this whole process is. And um, all you can do is prepare as much as possible and, and just have that flexibility to to make adjustments on the fly and see where it takes you. But one other item I wanted to hit because it was a specific request from Gates3Designs, uh, also on Instagram. He asked about preparing specifically for the architecture license. I try not to tell or recommend what to do, but I will tell you what I did and you can pick and choose what you like from it because everybody has their own study techniques. But what I did for our licensing exam is I didn't overwhelm myself with all the different study materials. I kind of limited it to the Kaplan and uh, for more technical tests, the ballast. Everybody knows, all the architects know this, so sorry for anyone that's not an architect. Oh yeah, those are all super familiar to me. <laughs> and then uh and then I took 6 months to read all of the study materials and then from that point I basically 
put all the exams on my credit card, spaced them out six weeks apart. It was seven exams at the time, uh, spaced them out six weeks apart, and then just focused in on each one prior to that exam. So um, that's kind of the process that I went through. Uh, not saying that it's great for everybody, but um, just some some tips for you. Did you guys have any specialty licensing that you would want to recommend or tell kind of how you went about it? Uh, yeah, I could go first. Or unless, Michelle, you'd like to go first. <laughs> go right ahead. <laughs> engineering, as a civil engineer, the typical license is the professional engineering license, which I highly recommend if you want, uh, I don't know how else to say this, but if you want to separate the men from the boys, you're going to need your license. <laughs> okay. Insight on how you went about oh. studying for that? Review courses. Uh, um, I, I was not a very studious uh, student. Uh, my wife still asks me, she does not believe that I have a degree in engineering. She wonders how I graduated to begin with. So I took a review course and that was very helpful. And I was, um, and I would study, uh, my, my, what worked for me was studying a little bit each day. So doing a couple problems at lunchtime and a couple problems in the evening, uh, that, that helped with me and having a study partner who was smarter than me, like most people are, that helped me as well. Oh, and flashcards for me were clutch. I see. I, I never use flashcards. <laughs> see, everybody's different. <laughs> Okay, so let's uh, let's wrap this up. Uh, Jason, I think, mentioned this to, to kind of come up with your guiding star in, in this process. Do it early if you can. And even if you can't, no matter where you are in your career, just figure out what exactly you want uh, for your future. What's your ideal day look like? What's your passion? What, what are the problem areas that, that you'd like to work on? And, you know, focus in and, and figure out what, what it is you want to do. Uh, so we will check in with some listener mail really quick. From Futurist. He said, hey guys, I love your podcast. Why don't you film it for YouTube? Would be awesome. <laughs> you can't wear the clothes you're wearing, Demetrius. Demetrius would actually have to get dressed and look like a professional. <laughs> So Michelle's, Michelle's shaking Sounds her head. Sounds like I'm excited I'm not there today. <laughs> this is a good thing. Michelle's shaking her head no. I, we, we are working on this. Please let us know if you would be interested in uh, filming for YouTube, uh, setting up a channel. Other than that, feel free to email us on anything that we talked about today. Any questions, anything you want us to talk about in the future. You can reach out to us on social media, Spaces Podcasts, and thank you again for spending some time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate or like it, forward the link to your friend. Your support is the only way that the show grows, and if you just stumbled upon the show, don't forget to subscribe and so you don't miss another episode. Also check out SpacesPodcast.com under the Listen tab. We'll have notes for the show and everything we talked about today. But before you go, next time on Spaces Podcasts. In the past, it's been much about programs and services that we can offer to our employees, like fitness centers and giving them access to different types of food. But when you actually add in design into the formula, it's just creates a holistic formula for a 
better outcomes, better retention, better engagement of employees, better productivity, because design plays an integral role of movement of people within the space. It creates a, a atmosphere for thinking about acoustical comfort, thermal comfort, mental comfort. All of those things are related to design elements within a space and they are pivotal in order to achieve this outcome of health and wellness. And with all that said, if you're catching up, hit next. Or if you're listening as we put these out, we'll see you in a couple weeks. Thanks. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.